Welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 15 tonight. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 15. We're looking at a message called Righteousness by Faith. Righteousness by Faith. Genesis 15, the very first book of the Bible. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we open your holy word now, we want to open our hearts to let that word come in deeply to our souls. Your word, the Bible says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're to long for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow into respect, in respect to salvation. Father, we want to be people who not only are believers, but people who are walking with you, walking in response to your grace. And Abram and Abraham, as he's later known, is a great picture of the believer striding through a journey of faith. And uh, though we are saved by grace through faith, there's still a walk to live out. And I pray that whatever application you want us to make tonight, Lord, you give us ears to hear what you would say to us, Lord. Help us to set aside all the distractions that we may have brought into this place tonight. Let us lay down our burdens at your feet. Let us lay our concerns at your feet. Let us give our full selves, our, uh, everything that we are, our passion, our calling where you may be directing us tonight. May we be fully committed to that, Lord. And we just pray that you would speak. I'd get out of your way, add and take away from what I've prepared so that you would speak, Lord, through your word. And we just pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So Abram, later known as Abraham, he is a picture of the believer. Uh, and I say the believer because Abram was known as the believer and we're to follow in the footsteps of his faith. And the first thing that we need to understand about Abram is that he was saved like everybody else is saved. He was saved by grace through faith. This particular chapter is a landmark chapter in the Bible because Genesis 15, specifically verse 6, is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in the book of Romans chapter 4, and we'll go there in a moment. Galatians chapter 3 and James chapter 2. Those are the three places where Genesis 15, 6 uh, is quoted. The context, context is extremely important. And what we need to learn about righteousness by faith is very important for our own walk with the Lord and our understanding in regard to how one is saved and then what we do in response to that salvation. Abram's just come off a great victory, as you know. He had to go rescue Lot, and Lot got himself in trouble, and these eastern kings grabbed him and took him off took out took off uh, with all these possessions and the like and Abram got a fighting force together men trained in his own household 318 and he pursued uh, his nephew Lot and pursued him to the northern part of Israel and was able to, in a stealth mission by night, rescue his nephew, uh, win a victory, a great victory, probably outmanned and outgunned. And he rescued Lot, got back all the possessions, made his way back down into the central, southern part of the promised land. And then he was confronted by the king of Sodom. If you remember, you were with us last week. And the king of Sodom said, hey, you know what, um, just give me back the people and you can keep the possessions. And Abram had a moment of temptation. And he had, a, he had made a commitment to God that he would not take anything from this victory that was given. He said, you know, he had made a covenant that he would not become wealthy by what Sodom represented. And Sodom is a type of, you know, the world and, and the king of Sodom is a type of Satan. And he didn't want to compromise and right in that moment came the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Do you remember that? And he's this mysterious figure that appears again in, the, in Psalm, I think it's 110, and then Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there's been all kinds of conjecture about him, but what we do know is that he's a type of Jesus Christ. And, and in the moment of temptation with the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, the king of peace, righteousness and peace shows up. And he's got two things. Remember what they were? He's got bread and wine. And it becomes a foreshadowing of the new covenant, the emblems that we share at the Lord's table of bread and wine. And Melchizedek offers them to Abram. And Abram is humbled and he receives a blessing from Melchizedek and then Abram gives back a tenth of all the spoils to this great king priest. And this is the scene that's unfolded. 
victory. And yet Abram's got some fear in his heart because he's got to be thinking about fear of reprisal, fear of retribution. I mean, he, went, he won the victory, but these forces were pretty significant. And he might have been thinking about all the what ifs. And I know sometimes we experience victories in our life and things go well and we walk with the Lord and we win somebody to Christ. But it doesn't mean that you don't go home and still have your own concerns. And Abram had them. And one of the main concerns that was still on Abram's heart was that he was childless. God had given a promise in Genesis 12 that he was going to bless him beyond what he could imagine, but Abram still did not have a child, so he was living in the shadow of barrenness. And in that culture, when you didn't have a child or a male heir, it was devastating. In fact, Solomon kind of uh, gives us this thought of the culture when he talks about children in Psalm 127 being a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And Abram had no heir. And so, yeah, he'd won the victory. Yeah, there was something to celebrate. Yeah, the intervention of Melchizedek was beautiful and even foreshadowed uh, prophecy, but still there was something missing. And you may be in that boat tonight. You know, maybe you've experienced some cool things in terms of your walk with the Lord and you're making progress and you're taking steps, footsteps of faith. And yet there's something that continues to gnaw at you, something that's missing. And for some of you, it may be a life partner. It may be clarification of ministry. And uh, Abram becomes a type of the believer in this sense as well. And this may speak to some of your situations tonight. He had to wait on God. He had to wait for the promises. Not every promise that God made to Abram just came like that. He had to stand upon the promises and walk by faith and not by sight. And so I think we can take some encouragement as believers and even some refuge in the life of Abram that it it doesn't always happen overnight. God's going to ask you to trust him. He's going to ask you to be patient with some things. He's going to teach you patience along the journey of faith. And that's the one thing that's so hard to learn, isn't it? The idea of patience. Oh, man, you don't want to pray for it because you know what happens when you pray for patience, right? So sometimes you don't even know what to do with that category. And with that introduction, it says in the Bible in Genesis 15, 1, after these things, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After what things? All that I just talked to you about in summary from the end of chapter 14. The word of the Lord came. By the way, this is the first time that we're going to see this idea of the word of the Lord coming in in this specific way. And the word um, for word is debar. And it came to Abram in a vision. Now, God has been speaking, but this is kind of this first Example of the word of the Lord, that phrase coming to an individual in this way. And notice it came in a vision, not in a dream, but in a vision. And the Lord said these words to Abram. So the Lord knows what's going on in his heart. He said, do not fear, Genesis 15, 1, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And whenever God says, do not fear, the one thing that we can assume from a Bible text is that the person was fearful. And I mentioned to you that Abram had come off this great victory, and we see Abram as this great man of faith, an example of faith, and yet he was still a man that had fear. And fear is a normal human emotion that we all deal with. And when the Bible says don't fear, it backs up that idea by saying the reason that you don't have to fear, look at verse 1, is because God is your shield. Can I get an amen? Can I get a hallelujah? God is your shield. That's why you don't have to be afraid. The Bible's not just saying to you, hey, uh, just don't worry. Come on, sing it with me. Be happy, right? Just, if you sing that enough, maybe you won't be fearful, right? If, if, you, if you read enough self-help books, maybe you won't be fearful anymore. Maybe you can turn your fear into uh, strength. But the Bible says, no, the reason you don't have to fear, you don't have to be in denial about real human emotion. But then you need to take that fear to the reality of who you are. You stand behind a shield. And that shield is almighty God. In fact, in the believer's arsenal in Ephesians 6.16, the Bible tells us we're to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish how many? All of the fiery arrows of the wicked one. 
We have a shield. God is our shield. And I am happy to hide behind him in the face of the enemy. I've taken enough direct shots to know that I would rather be behind his shield. God says, I am. By the way, um, that particular, just two words, I am, is familiar to all students of the Bible because the great I am is God. Exodus 3.14, this is the name that he gives to Moses when Moses asks, what's your name? What should I share with the children of Israel? God says, I am. We're all familiar with the I am statements of Jesus in the New Testament. I am the bread of life, John 6.48. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10, verse 9. I am the good shepherd, John 10, I think it's verse 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the true vine, John 15. I am. I am everything that you need and more. And here God says, I am, Abram, your shield. And Abram was thinking about probably a future war. But God had given him the victory. And that's what Melchizedek said to Abram. God has given you this victory. And so God is saying, in essence, if I gave you that victory, why are you worrying about the next reprisal? Sometimes we win a victory in Christ and then we say, Lord, but I don't know what's going to happen next time. And we're in good company. Even the prophets of Israel, having won a major victory, Elijah, you know, he won the the victory against the prophets of Baal, but then he was running from Jezebel, right? And, And so, you know, at one moment, we can feel like we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, and we have to remember that God is our shield. He is the great I am. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. In Jeremiah 1, 11, and 12, if you want to write it down, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, and said, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Jeremiah 1, 11, and 12. God will keep his promises. He watches over his word and his servants to perform his promises that he's made to them. And you belong to God. And he watches over you. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. By the way, that song was written by a couple that had been through terrible physical maladies pretty much their whole life. And they wrote the song, my eye, his eye is on the spiral. I know he watches me. Christ is our protection from all harm and our provision for all needs. That's why in Romans 13, 14, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So we are told to put on God. We are Christians, but still we have to walk by faith every single day. You have to make it official. Psalm 5, verse 12 says, It is you who blesses me, the righteous, blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. You might want to write these down. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then in Psalm 3, verse 3 Many of us um, have this verse in our heart. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. Hallelujah. You're the lifter of my head. So God is a shield about Abram. And this is the promise that Abram is given. And of course, it's a promise that we need to also rest in because that same promise is given to us. It's not just for Abram, it's for every believer. God is your shield and your reward, Abram is told, shall be very great. Abram's wondering about the future. God's been making promises to him. And God says, your reward is very, very great. I'm going to bless you far beyond what you could imagine. These blessing sections, just peek back for a second. Genesis 12 verses two and three says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Genesis 12, 2, make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you look at uh, Genesis 12, 
And look at verse, uh, oh, let's skip on to chapter 13, verse 14. 13, 14 says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants uh, can also be numbered. And so Abram walked about the earth, walked about the land, its length, its breadth, and God reminded him, I'm going to give it to you. But Abram had a question, and it's found in Genesis 15, verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God. Now, how many of us have had a promise given to us, and maybe it's been affirmed or reconfirmed multiple times, but we still have the yeah, but syndrome. How many of you want to admit that you're, you're in that camp? Oh Lord, I know you've given me these promises, but what will you give me since I am childless? You've been making all these grandiose promises to me, but Lord, let me just remind you of the status of my wife and I, just in case you missed it. I am childless. I do not have an heir. How am I going to have descendants that outnumber the sand of the seashore? And in this chapter, we'll see as, you know, if you could number the stars in the sky, if I don't even have a child. And by the way, my biological clock is ticking. Lord, do you hear it? Tick, tick, tick. And we get worried about this kind of stuff. How are you going to handle this, Lord? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who was probably a steward born in Abram's household. He said, okay, Lord, um, I've got a steward here, but is that how this is going to work? And Abram said, since thou hast given me no offspring... Uh, One born in my house is my heir. That's the way it works. And so I guess that's what I'm going to have to settle for. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. The word of the Lord came and it came bringing further revelation. Abram, no. This is not going to be done any other way than in the natural way. You are going to have an heir come from your body. And he took him outside. Have you ever done this? Maybe with, uh, you know, if you ever get to go to a place where maybe you can see stars in Southern California. (laughs) Maybe you go up to a cabin or some people like to go to the desert. Even sometimes if you're on the, the beach and you look up at the stars And that's what God did. He took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, the Bible says, as Israel questions God's faithfulness later in the life of the nation, God says, look, I not not only did I make the stars, I call them all by name. And I have not forgotten you, O Israel. Why do you assert, O Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel, the Lord, he's not paying attention to what's going on. I'm paraphrasing in my life. No, Abram, a vast people is coming from your body. In fact, not only is a vast people coming from your body, not only are you going to inherit a spacious land, but this is really important, you guys. From your loins, Abram, is coming the Messiah. The promise I made back in Genesis 3 when your parents fell in the garden from you, Abram, will come the Redeemer, the Savior. And in Genesis 22, which we'll get to later, Abram has an idea that he's acting out prophecy with the son of promise, with Isaac. God is doing a marvelous work in Abram's life. And Abram may even at this point have an idea that God is going to bring the Savior from his own loins or his own family heritage. And then this critical verse. Then he, verse 6, Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that's God, reckoned or credited or counted it, that is his belief, back to him as righteousness. See the word believed in Hebrew, it is the word Alman, A-M-A-N, that's how we would translate it, transliterate it, Aman. What's that sound like to you? Amen. Abraham 
God made a promise and Abraham said, amen. And when you say amen, by the way, what you are saying is, it is so. So when you amen a preacher, you better make sure the preacher's preaching truth. Did you hear that? Right on cue. Amen. Sometimes I've seen certain contexts where amen should not be being made. I remember after a slow pitch softball game, we were praying and, uh, you know, we were in some strong competition that day and uh, somebody decided they would pray over their favorite baseball team. I think they were a Yankee fan. And so, you know, they said, oh, Lord, I don't even know if you should pray about stuff like this, but oh, Lord, let the Yankees do well. And, you know, and somebody in the group who was not a Yankees fan said, I cannot say the amen <laughs> and released the hands of all Yankee fans. <laughs> but W.H. Griffith observes the original Hebrew for believed comes from a root whence we derive our amen. And we might paraphrase it by saying that Abram said, amen to the Lord. This is a statement of faith. God said it, and Abram said, even though I don't completely get it, and even though I haven't fully realized it, amen. And you know what? You and I are in the same boat tonight. I haven't seen him yet, not face to face, but I love him. He's told me he's preparing a place for me. I'm not at that city yet, and I'm not trying to rush it either. (laughs) And right now, I'm here in my faith journey, here with you. We're walking by faith, not by sight, and we're standing on the promises. And if you are a believer, you have said to God, Amen. I believe. Do you know that your whole life will be determined on whether or not you can say amen to what God says? Your whole life. And not only your life now, but your destiny will be determined on who you say amen to. Which voice do you want to listen to? Whose, you know, flute or Pied Piper or drum do you want to march to? Who are you going to believe? You're going to, you're going to embrace some worldview that says something about life's philosophy. Where are you? You know, Abram had a pagan background. It wasn't like he was born in a believing household. Joshua 24 tells us that his parents were pagans. You may be the first Christian in your family. Maybe you're a person that's starting to check out Christianity and you're wondering, man, I don't know. I don't have this background. I don't... I don't even know where most of the books are where the preacher says to turn to. That's okay. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You know where one is. That's a good start. And so something else happened when Abram believed in the Lord. And that's one of the most important things to God, that you trust him, that you say yes to him. God did something. Abram believed and God credited that belief to him as what? As righteousness. Do you know that so many people are wondering how one can be right with God? Do you know that just about every, I think it's every world religion and, and ism that you can think of will tell you that to be righteous in God's sight, you're going to have to do certain things. You're going to have to measure up to certain standards. You're going to have to let your good works outweigh your bad works And if you do, then one day you will be righteous, hopefully, in the courts of God. But what did Abram do here that made him righteous? He believed. Would you take and turn to Romans 4? Take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 4. This is one of the places where the Apostle Paul picks up this idea. Romans 4, much of the teaching in Paul's day was that righteousness came by works, and that's what they taught in much of their literature about the patriarchs. And Paul, in the famous um, grace section, which is, you know, all through the book of Romans, he says these words, Romans 4, verse 1. Romans 4, 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. Whenever you want to answer a question like this, ask the next question, Romans 4.3, what does the scriptures say? And Paul quoting Genesis 15.6 says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. If you and I contracted for work at $10 an hour and you said, Pastor Michael, I'll pay you to pull my weeds, I would probably negotiate with you. More like $100 an hour is what I'd want to pull weeds. But let's say we agreed and I came to your house, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 11 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And let's say I put in a hard eight hours and I come to you at 7 p.m. and I say, I pulled your weeds, I made your yard look nice you owe me 80 bucks. And let's say that you, you know, get ready to pull out your wallet and you say, Pastor Michael, you sure should be grateful that I'm about to give you this $80. This is a gift. I'm giving you out of my benevolent heart. I would say to you, no, you're not. You and I had a contract. I pulled your weeds. You owe me $80. You see, but that's not how this works. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor or a gift, but what is due him. But to the one, verse 5, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David, another great patriarch, also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not, what? Take into account. This is all accounting terminology. If you turn to Galatians, we'll pick up another section here. Just keep going right. Galatians chapter three. This is all accounting terminology. And it's not just about Abram. And we say, well, Abram, you know, he was doing pretty good. He had the fumble in Egypt, but he seemed to be a man walking by faith. But how about David? Because Psalm 32 is written when David sinned with Bathsheba. And so now David picks up this beautiful idea of righteousness by faith and he says, blessed is the man or the woman whose lawless deeds are covered. David should have died for his sin with Bathsheba. But the Lord covered. And people get nervous when you start teaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone plus nothing because they say something like this, well then people are gonna do just whatever they wanna do and Christians are gonna go out and they're gonna live however they want and Paul says, no, you never use grace as what? An excuse for sin, that's Romans 6 verse one and I will tell you that there's a list of things that happen to believers if you decide to toy with God's grace. Number one, you invite the discipline of God into your life. If you want to write these down, I I went through these in Romans 4, which is on the website. If a Christian wants to toy with God's grace, walk the razor's edge, you know, say they are part of heaven, but then live like hell the rest of the week, you are inviting the discipline of God into your life. Hebrews 12, God disciplines the son in whom he delights. If God loves you, he will discipline you. So that's a guarantee you have. I'm not talking about if you make a mistake that God's ready to whack you with the stick. I'm talking about if you continue to push the envelope and people get nervous and they say, well, how could you tell somebody they won't lose their salvation? Oh, well, if they're saved, I don't believe they will, but I believe they can be disciplined by the Lord. Number two, I believe they can lose rewards in heaven. Number three, I believe that you can lose your testimony before your friends and family. You may not lose your salvation, but you'll lose your witness. Is that what you want? After David sinned with Bathsheba, uh, the prophet told him, now you've given the enemies of God reason to blaspheme. Yeah, God forgave you, David, but it doesn't mean you don't have consequences. And in the, in the things that I would list to a, a person who is messing with the grace of God, that's probably fourth on my list, and that is Consequences. The child that was born to David and Bathsheba in that uh, extramarital adultery, that child died. 
That was God's discipline on David. Yeah, David was forgiven, but the baby died. So look, even though grace is amazing, and even though it saved a wretch like me, it doesn't mean that you toy with grace. It means you grow. You say, but Pastor Michael, this may be like number five on our list. What if I make a mistake? Look, you're going to make mistakes every day. I make mistakes every day. Being a Christian is not about perfection. It is about direction. Being a Christian is not about being sinless, but it is about sinning less. And if you make a mistake, the best thing that you can do, and you will make mistakes, is repent of it quickly. So let's say you skin your knee, you blow it. Let's say that you consider something and you even, you know, think about it and you premeditated and you still sin. The best thing to do, instead of listening to the voice of the one who wants to condemn you, which is Satan, and knowing that you're not condemned in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1, repent of it quickly, make amends if you need to, and move forward in your walk with Jesus Christ. But don't toy with God's grace. You just not to do that. You see, there's a list that we can make of ramifications of when someone takes grace as an excuse for sin. David says, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That's Psalm 51, 16 and 17. And so this is what, Abraham and David found. They found a God that is gracious, but a God that's also holy. Look at Galatians 3, verse 6. It says, even so, uh, Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The second place where this is quoted in the New Testament. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. By the way, at this point in Abraham's life, Genesis 15, he's not technically a Jew. You could say he's a Hebrew, but he's not been circumcised. He will be circumcised in Genesis 17, which is about 14 years after this. So technically, he's not in that covenant, if you will. And so you might even say that right now he represents a group that could include Gentiles. I'll let you wrestle with that a little bit theologically, but... The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. It is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So this is the second spot where it is mentioned. Now back to Genesis um, chapter 15 and I'll mention the third spot where it's mentioned because this this does bring up questions and it's in James 2. And in that section, James is arguing still that we are saved by grace. I don't think he contradicts Paul, but what he's saying is that If you say you have faith and you have no works, can that type of faith save you? Here's the the deal. If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, then what he truly has is a said faith and not a real faith. This is the essence of James chapter two. The other place where Genesis 15, six is quoted. And what James is basically saying is, yes, you are saved by grace, but if you don't have works, 
then that faith is dead. It's not a real living faith. Abraham had marvelous works. He even was willing to sacrifice Isaac later in Genesis 22. But he was saved by grace. And that's the point of the passage. But because you are saved by grace, it should motivate you to do great works for God. Amen? You should want to live out a life of gratitude to God. But having begun in the spirit, we're not going to be perfected in the flesh. It's going to be all the work of the spirit. The work of the spirit in salvation and the work of the spirit in sanctification. If, you got, if you're born again of the Holy Spirit and now you're trying to get sanctified by the flesh, good luck. It's not going to work. And this is the essence of Galatians 3, 1 and 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, 1 through 3, Galatians 3. Who's bewitched you? You began in the spirit. Now you're going to be perfected in the flesh. Now, flesh, now you think you've got to do it by works? No, that's not the deal. It's all the spirit. And the more I'm walking with the Lord, the more I'm realizing how much it's not just about, you know, uh, it's not really about self-effort at all. It's about surrender. You might want to write that down. It's not about self-effort. It's about surrender. And when I surrender the, to the Holy Spirit and the things of God, then the beauty of the life of God comes out of my life. Genesis 15, 7, he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out. You might want to write down Exodus 20, verse 2 there. Same language as when God brought out the children of Israel out of Egypt. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Genesis 15, 7, to give you this land, to possess it. Now, even with this great belief, Abram is still human. And he says, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? This is a great promise. And I don't know that this is a lack of faith. I think he's looking for more detail, maybe some confirmation. You ever been there before? Gideon did this. Lord, I'm going to put the fleece out. (laughs) What, three different times, Lord? I hope this doesn't bother you, but could I get one more (laughs) confirmation? One more validation. Anybody there? Lord, do you really want me to do that? I know you've given me 17 confirmations, but I'm looking for the 18th. And then I'll be, are you that person? When I get the 18th, when I, when I, get, when I get the 19th confirmation, the Lord's saying, go. What more do you need? But God is patient. And Abram says, how may I know that I shall possess it? And in here, in context, he's talking about the land. And now this intriguing ceremony. So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, that's a, a calf or a cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, verse nine, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So God says, okay, Abram, we're going to do a little ceremony here to confirm the covenant because you obviously still have some doubt. And what they would do in the ancient world is they, they had ceremonies. And in our ancient uh, you know, culture, we might lay our hand on a Bible or we might raise our right hand or we might have a certain way in which we confirm an oath or a promise. But in the ancient world, they did it with animal parts. Yeah, I know. And they would take animals and they would cut them along the backbone. This will prepare you for our time of koinonia afterwards. <laughs> and they would cut the animals in half and Abram does not cut the birds and they would take animals and they would set them in rows and kind of take one half of the animal on the other side and they would make kind of a row and it could, there could be an altar involved here. And the agreeing parties who were going to make the covenant would walk through the cut animal pieces and the birds would be lined up here and they were not cut probably because of their size and the two would walk through the animal parts and what they were saying is this if I don't keep my end of the covenant may what happen to these animals that's pretty significant isn't it imagine if we did this at modern wedding ceremonies do you think it would lessen the divorce rate May what happen to this animal? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Brandon, do we have the video of the animal pieces? (laughs) Just kidding. We're not going to do that. In Jeremiah 34, uh, 17, the leaders proclaimed that they were going to set slaves free. 
This is Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20. And God said, they didn't follow through. And God said, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant. Listen to these words. Who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20. There's an illustration. They, they made a covenant. They made an oath before God, but then they didn't, they didn't fulfill it. And God said, there's going to be a price to pay. In Abram's day, an oath was confirmed by a ceremony with these animal pieces. The parties walked together. Uh, can two walk together unless they be agreed? We're told in the book of Amos. I almost picture a bride walking down the aisle, you know, in a covenant type ceremony. The oath was especially sacred because of the shed blood and the violation of it was considered a great dishonor in this culture. And the animal pieces are there and a substitutionary death is represented. Something has to die uh, in order to make the covenant. This all starts to point to the sacrificial system to be realized in Israel's later history. The intimation, one writer says, perhaps was that if he broke it, the substitutionary death of animals would no longer be efficacious and he himself or possibly his cattle would be subject to death. The ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse should either of the covenant parties break the curse. Following this, presumably the animals would either be roasted or eaten or, or else be consumed by fire, close quote. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two, Abram did, and this probably took quite a while to do this, probably a day, at least a full day. And he laid each half, verse 10, opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Now you imagine being Abram, you've done all this work, you have to get the animals, you have to cut them properly, you have to set up this ceremony, and now you're waiting on the Lord. And all of a sudden the birds of prey start swooping in because what are they attracted to? <laughs> Here's all these cut animal parts, right? And so you can imagine this scene if it was ever in a movie, you know, Abram's got a broom or something <laughs> trying to shoo away the birds. And so the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Uh, by the way, this uh, picture of the birds, some writers have said is a picture of Satan, how he tries to swoop in and ruin things that God is doing. And even in Egypt, and later the people will be in bondage to Egypt, they had a carrion-type bird who was one of their gods. It was called Horus, and he was a carcass-eating god with a small g, a false god. And this is kind of a picture of Satan always trying to get involved in the work of God, and he must be shooed away. A picture of Israel down through the ages in bondage to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, um, Greece, Rome, you know, all the Ottoman Empire did, and even Nazi Germany, and all these swooping in enemies. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, same language as what happened to Adam. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So he's cut the animals, and he's gone into this deep sleep, and now he's got a sense of terror. Uh, writers would say the terror is a sense of the arrival of God, like on Sinai, the holiness of God, the power of God. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That's going to be the Egyptian bondage prophesied by God. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, 14. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. That indeed did happen under Moses. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here to the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, people read that and they say, what in the world is the iniquity of the Amorite? And I don't have the book I was going to bring in. I must have left it. But the Amorite was one of the Canaanite uh, people groups living in the promised land. And the Amorite, they were very wicked people. And God was so patient. In fact, there's a portion of Leviticus where it lists 15 or more 
sexual sins that they committed, which are unspeakable. And God warned the children of Israel, do not repeat the sins of these people. And the, their, God is so patient. This is a picture of his patience that he waited and he waited. And in fact, it says the, uh, the iniquity is not yet complete. God was being patient. And when Israel went into Canaan, do you know that the Amorite had finally exhausted the patience of God so that when Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, he was destroying people who had utterly exhausted God's grace. All these arguments from people who say, how could God allow Israel to go in and wipe out these peoples? These people, God waited on them for hundreds of years to repent. And they kept getting worse and worse and worse. So that this mission of Joshua when he went in was really the judgment of God. It wasn't them them stealing land away from other people. It was God's judgment. And God had been extremely patient. The Amorite is a way to say all of those who are in the land of Canaan or the Canaanites. And it came about, 17, when the sun had set, it was very dark. And behold, yeah, there appeared a smoking oven. It's okay. And a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. So all of a sudden, the sun went down. It was very dark. And behold, God appears. And he's pictured as a smoking oven uh, or a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And it, this presence symbolic of God, passed through the pieces. Abram was not passing through. Only God was. And God is pictured as a, as a smoking oven or a smoking fire pot, which is an image of a refiner's fire. You all know what that's. You put metals into it, and you know they've been refined when the, the silversmith can see what? His own image in them. And he's like, he's like this fire, um, this uh, torch of fire. It speaks of God's holiness and his refiner's fire, a blazing torch, purifying, judging his awesome presence. And Abram is simply uh, watching on, if you will. He's not walking through. Only God makes this covenant, which makes it, by the way, an unconditional covenant. It's only dependent upon God. God is walking through the cut animal pieces and God alone. And listen to this. What God is saying then is if I don't keep my promise... May what happened to these animals happen to me. May I die if I don't keep my word to you, Abram. What do you think Abram might have been thinking at this point? Now, we know it's impossible for God to die. He can't die. But you say, but in Jesus, God did die. Well, Jesus came as the God-man and he was killed as a human being, but you can't kill God. It was impossible for death to hold him. And in a sub point, you could see that God is saying, hey, this covenant is good. If they could kill me, they could kill the promise. Are you hearing that, brother and sister? Because sometimes we feel like we're walking and we wonder, are the promises good? Hey, the promises are good. They're as good as God. God is eternal. It's impossible to stop what he wants to do. But in another sense, there's a beauty here on a deeper level. Since this all, Abram, you know, is going to, from his loins is going to come the Messiah. And the Messiah was cut for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. God is so serious about bringing you into his covenant. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. If you want to know how much God loves you, just take another look at the cross. Why would he go through that? Because he's true to his promises. And because he's going to fulfill his word. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We're almost done saying to your descendants, I have given this land. It's already a done deal from the river of Egypt as far as the great river of Euphrates. That would be from the Nile to the Euphrates. And this is, you know, you guys, I mean, in 48 and now in 67 in Jerusalem, Israel's back in the land. You all know that, right? 
So in, in part, this has been realized, but the fullness of the promise is coming when Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, look at verse 20, and the Amorite, which was mentioned in verse 16, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your promises in Christ are yes and amen. Thank you that we are heading for the promised land. And your promise is good. In fact, you have made a covenant. And we are in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever break it. Jesus will never die again. He died once for all of our sins. And now we're in covenant with him. And it's a promise really made unilaterally. It's a promise you made. You did the work. It's a promise that is eternal. But it must be responded to by faith. And even though you've paid that full price and you walked, you walked Gethsemane into the cross alone, yet you will ask us, Lord, to receive what you've done for us at Calvary. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian tonight and you want to know this love, this God of promise and covenant, maybe you... Your whole background is about broken promises. You can meet a God tonight who is true to his word. He will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. But you must come into covenant with him, and that means you must respond to his finished work on the cross and through the resurrection. If that's you tonight, or maybe you're a backslidden Christian, and you've come to try to get back to God, you must start that with prayer. You've taken the first step just by being here, but it's something like this. I would encourage you, just pray it right now. Jesus, pray it out loud. If it's you, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you that you took the punishment that I deserve. Thank you that you've made a promise to me. Eternal life if I will trust in you. I turn from my sins and I put my faith in you. Please save me and change me and use me. And Lord, for the precious group that's here tonight who's already saved, I pray that they would be anchored more in the promises. I pray that they would be encouraged in their faith that you are our shield, our strong tower, our refuge. I pray, Father, tonight that you would encourage maybe someone's faith who needs uh, just a fresh touch, that you would bring clarity to vision for ministry, that you would strengthen maybe a relationship that might be on the fringe or broken tonight. You bring healing and hope to us all. We love you and we worship you. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand?